This is your host, Tia. This is your host, Tia. Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Top 10. Why? Geek Vibe Nation. Geek Vibe Nation. 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 The Top 10. The Top 10. Hello, 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 everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of the Top 10 by Geek Vibes Nation. As always, I'm your host, Tia, and if I sound just a little off today, just know that I turned 30 yesterday, and as is customary when you turn another decade, you have to go out and get completely hammered, and that's where I'm at this morning, but... I'm really excited to be here, really excited to be doing this show. As always, I have my fabulous co-host with me today, Brittany. How are you? Oh, I'm great. But when you said, oh, every decade, I was like, when you're 10, when you're 20, were you getting crunk to you? Yeah, Those are things exactly. that I do know about you. <laughs> I actually, like, was one of those people that really didn't legitimately drink until I was 21. I never had a fake ID. I was like, I'm going to obey the law. Um, That's a good girl. Thank you. Um, I can't say that for most things in my life, but at least that. But (laughs) (laughs) So it's me and Brittany this morning, and we actually have a really special guest with us, and I'm super pumped to have him on the show. Mark um, from They Call This a Movie that I pretty much talk about every podcast is with us today. How are you doing this morning, Mark? Good, good. Uh, welcome to becoming one of us, Tia. Um, <laughs> we'll start waking up with uh, mysterious back pain, and we'll start oh. getting excited when people cancel plans on you. I've been that way for probably the last six years with the canceling of plans. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> I'm a known couch potato. There is literally like a home video back when I was a kid and there's like a family function and it's outside. And then the camera pans to where the living room is and you can see me on the couch watching TV and they're like, there's Tia watching TV as there's a family function. (laughs) So I've been training for this my whole life, but um This morning we're doing the top 10, and it's actually one that Mark suggested, and is the top 10 moments from Snowpiercer. If you watched Parasite, which won the friggin' Oscar um, by Bong Joon-ho, then you should definitely check out his other work, especially 2013 Snowpiercer. It was actually his first English-language movie, and it stars Chris Evans in this really wacky type of film and I remember watching it at first because it had Chris Evans in it obviously and at first I was like this movie's really weird I'm not gonna like this movie it's really strange and then I watched it and I still was like it's really strange but I just kept trying to convince myself of that but then as I like sat there I was like no this movie's really freaking good and really poignant so I really enjoy it um I kind of forced Brittany to watch it so that she would be prepared for this as well. I didn't so, know what to uh, expect. Of. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, go ahead. I was going to make a joke. You're, you're probably going to be a little more serious. Oh, wait, no, give me the joke. <laughs> I want the joke. I feel like laughing. 
uh, I was going to go, so uh, everybody out there has watched his second best movie. Now go watch Snowpiercer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, like I think what got me about watching the movie is at first I was like, this is going to be weird. It's going to be poor quality. It's going to be, I didn't know quite what to expect. I just know TM was like, this is what it's going to be over this weekend. Please watch the movie. And watching it, I was like, this is kind of higher quality than I was expecting. The acting was higher quality. I was like, it wasn't as weird as I thought it was going to be. But maybe it's just because I watched a lot of, like, weird movies recently. But I was like, you know what? This is great. This is golden. I I like this. And I hate myself for loving it. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of those things where everyone at this point knows Chris Evans solely from being Captain America. And I urge those who are out there to watch his other stuff because he's a legitimately good actor who can do more than just playing Steve Rogers. But I made the joke with Brittany before that it's hilarious that we're reviewing this movie because it is about the end of the world. And right now it pretty much feels like we're at the end of the world. I woke up at, 7.30 this morning, went to CVS, um, and CVS near me is right above ShopRite. And as I'm passing by ShopRite, I notice that there are absolutely no carts outside, which is always an indication to me that it's absolute mayhem in the supermarket. And, of course, as I looked in, every aisle has a massive line. People are hoarding, of course, toilet paper and shit, and it's like, This is insane because I usually do my food shopping this early in the morning because there's normally no one in the fucking supermarket and no. So I went up to CVS and I was like, does it get like this downstairs? And they're like, oh, yeah, it's going to probably be crazy later on. And people just wash your hands like as you normally should have and stop hoarding toilet paper. I don't understand the obsessiveness here. It's true, like... um, Sorry. I keep interrupting you. I, it's sorry about <laughs> that. There's like that lag, and I'm like, ah, uh, eh, 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 eh. We're not <laughs> used to three people. <laughs> yeah. I, Go ahead, Mark. I was going to say, it feels like um, like a blizzard's coming. It's sort yeah. of the, you know, when you go out to the store, it, it has that feeling of, ah, something really bad's coming tomorrow, and everybody's hoarding up on supplies for that. But nope, it's like 70 degrees yesterday. You know, it's a really odd thing. Yeah. It's sort of like with us, like Arkansas, they, uh, you know, they've kind of scoffed over the whole coronavirus thing because we we stayed so long without getting a confirmed case. Then we got our first one in a town not too far away from us, which you got to imagine our towns are like 10,000 people, like in each of them or less, like my town. And so I was like, oh, okay, we got our first confirmed case. No, all Walmarts all instantly sold out of toilet paper. And I was like, what? I was like, it's not half as bad as, like, New York or Ohio or any of these other places. But everybody's, like, instant panic mode. Yeah, I don't know which part of the opening montage to a disaster movie we're at right now. But uh, (laughs) probably, like, somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I I will say that it's probably going to get worse before it gets better, but China seems to actually have an 80% success rate um, 
on their recoveries and life is kind of returning back to normal. So that's where I'm going to be hopeful about. I'm going to say we just got to do all this craziness um, and then we'll probably get get better. But in the meantime, while you're self-isolating, make sure that you check out our awesome content, uh, such as this podcast. So <laughs> before we kind of move on into the actual list, another amazing content that you need to check out is Mark's other podcast, which is called Stranger Damies. And I do this now at the top of every show because um, your co-host, Anthony Del Vecchio, actually gave me a really nice blurb to promote. So I'm going to do that as I always do. Um, so Stranger Damies is the ongoing real play D&D podcast from the main Damie family of podcasts. Join them every Wednesday as the wild stallions traverse the many traps and tribulations that Dungeons and Dragons, this edition, has to throw in their path. There's elves, weird hacked dragon people, conspiracies to uncover, and more references to the 1980s than Ready Player One. Subscribe to the podcast on all podcast services by searching Stranger Damies, and make sure to follow them on Twitter and Instagram at Stranger Damies. Of course, Stranger Damies is also a proud member of Geek Vibes Nation, and you can find us at geekvibesnation.com. Um, I always usually ask Brittany if I did a good job with that because I know nothing about D&D, but I'm going to ask you, Mark, if you feel like I did a good job with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, that, that was pretty good. Well done. It's just, um, I, I don't think I've actually heard that promo, you know, from Anthony. You did a good job with it. Um, I was like, you got to give me something to say because I'm just sitting there going, yeah, Stranger Damies, it's a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Check it out. (laughs) He is like the ultimate fangirl too. Like the amount of times I heard about Stranger Damies, I've heard more of than any other side. I'm like, man, she loves them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, that, that podcast is, is uh, you know, a lot of fun. We've been doing it two years, and we just it's going to be our 103rd episode coming up. So, um, yeah, it's fun to see, hear you guys, uh, you know, promote it and, and help with the numbers like you do. So, Absolutely. And, yeah, so everyone make sure that you check that out. And, of course, we're going to move on to the actual list here and because mark is a guest we're going to start off with him so mark why don't you give us your number 10 moment from snowpiercer okay um so my number 10 moment i uh i didn't want to i i wanted to do this at number 10 because i didn't want to pick an exact moment um because i wanted to just praise the uh director of photography and the way the train changes as you go through it and just how the the colors and the the shots and just gave something that could be very boring a lot of life and you know I think that aspect of going through the movie is something while not a singular moment um, is definitely something that um, is worthy to be on the top ten list about this movie um, because it's just it's really beautiful and they they do a great job of um, you know, uh, setting up the stark contrast uh, between the two ends of the train. Um, so I wanted to at least start my list off with praising uh, a part of the film production crew that probably doesn't get as much praise as they should. 
but it was really well done. Yeah, absolutely. And I, the thing about now that I've watched Parasite and a few other of Bong Joon-ho's films, he really just takes, like, such great care of picking people to really set the scene, and that's what Snowpiercer does because the movie opens up and you're on the back end of the train. You see all these people pretty much living in squalor. You assume that for 17 years of being on a train that all the other sections must look like that. No, though, it transitions and you see um, an aquarium, this gorgeous freaking uh, sauna with all this yellow. You're in a club. You're in a freaking sushi bar and all of that. Yep. And it transitions really nicely with the lighting and really just sets the stage and kind of, it's almost, I want to say like a fun house because every section is different. You encounter all these like different experiences and it makes me really interested because I don't know if you guys know this, but they're actually developing a Snowpiercer series. I think it might have been done already. Um, And I'm wondering if they're going to keep like that same sort of idea of as you go through the trains, it's every single one is completely different. Yeah. Without seeing the actual series, um, my guess would be if if I was running the series would be, I would focus more on um, the different cars in the front of the train. Um, because in the movie, they don't tell much of that story. Um, so, you know, you, like, just give us more insight into what's going on up there um, while still having your main characters be back in the train, people. Uh, but, yeah, I think that, I think having a series let you be more in-depth. Maybe you spend a lot of time in one car for an episode or two. You know, they go through the, you know, they got to find something out at the club or or there's some thing happening in the, you know, uh, the sushi bar spot or something, you know, like the, the amount of time they spend in some of the front of the train stuff, I could see lending itself to being better in a series than in a movie. Um, so, but yeah, but like you said, there, there's, that, there's so much to tell in this and um, a series is perfect. I just hope they don't overdo it. Like things like the walking dead and things, you know, series like that where you just run out of material. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's, I, I am, I'm excited to catch that at some point. Um, but there's a, there's a lot to tell um, there. And, and, you know, just rewatching this movie last night, you know, reminded me of like, Oh yeah, that series should be good. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it personally, um, especially since it takes place, seven years after the train first starts as opposed to the 17 years that the movie does. And I agree with you that they certainly should focus a little bit more on the front part. That wasn't something that we really got to see too much. We just saw it mostly in passing in the movie. But I'm hoping that would be good. It should be one of those things where it's like one or two seasons. I don't think that it should trail off like, say, The Walking Dead. But we'll see what happens. But... Brittany, what did you think of the transition from all of the carts and the lighting? Did it certainly do its job in setting the stage pretty much? 
I do agree because when you think about starting up the movie at the tail end with the the people that haven't got to see these places, so it's kind of nice that you do expect it to be all that same way and things be a little bit different. But it, like having not had anything spoiled for myself and seeing them go through the steps and they're kind of wondering, like that wonder and amazement because they didn't have windows, they couldn't see outside. So it starts out that slow little bit where you're like, okay, there's windows, there's plenty of beds up here. And I have to assume that the second class was basically their more mili- militant uh, class in that. I because I, I don't know if I ever quite figured that part out, but uh, so then you have it moving up, and I I got no I got amazed when you see the aquarium or like the dirt, and there's like plants growing, and you're like, man, this is great. And then you see them go like where there's the tailor and. All that good stuff. I was like, man, I was like, it made you really wonder, like, couldn't they have made all of it work? And I think that's what you're supposed to kind of lead into. So it definitely took me by surprise where I was like, man, this really is a great transition. It's really that I think that's like part of that amazement was where I was like, okay, the, the concept's a little weird, but like the execution is amazing. The one thing that what, cause I was rewatching it recently with Pauly, and he pointed out, and I laughed a little because, you know, of course, it's a movie, it's fiction, but he was saying that every time they do that, you know, when they circle the world, that that aquarium probably would have, like, busted a million times over. Oh, that's a good point. That is a good point. Um, I also sometimes wonder, oh, there was something I was going to add to that, where I was like, how many times have y'all hit that? By the way, like all that ice that almost kills y'all every single time. I think that it was 17 times. I think that's why they uh, count that, say, as like, quote, unquote, the new year, because it's like we could pass it and then keep going, or we could completely derail and just all plunge to our death. Well, that's fun yeah. and exciting. <laughs> Yeah, it's, but yeah, it's like the um, yeah the the idea with that um, thing is just how much different. I think that scene in particular. Um, I'm gonna I, later on. I'm gonna talk about another piece of that scene, but um, it's just showing the difference between the front and back of the train in terms of how they celebrate the things that go on. Um, like with them celebrating the new year as they go and hit those things. Well, the people in the back probably don't even feel it, really. So they have no idea mm. if there's any change or anything like that. Um, unless if they do, they just they didn't implement that, uh, indicate that um, in the movie. But it just shows the the first time the people in the back of the train are going through this, and how much you know excitement the front of the train is for it. And I think that was one of the first real uh, good choices for the dichotomy between the two sections there. And, you know. Yeah. And it could certainly be something that we explore in the series. But I do love that this is the way that we started off this list. Um, I'm going to shoot it over to Brittany for her number nine. I was going to say, I'm going to go ahead. And since we're on this note, uh, talking about where they pass on the bridge in their version of a new year, because 
when I sat there and, you know, you have everything wild going on with the people that actually had, like, the swords and the knives and the axe, and it's all this, like, death and destruction, and then suddenly everything stops, and it's like, what's it called? Like, it was like the Yucata Bridge. I'm trying to remember exactly how they said it, but that they were passing, and then suddenly everybody stops fighting, and then you have Edgar go, man, I hate getting older. Uh, like, it, 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 like, what do you say, like, getting older every year? Like, it was just, like, the humor where you're almost, like, it was almost eye-opening to how, like, detached the first and second class are because they were weird, like, the grinning with, like, bloody smile, not really fearing death. It was almost like they were so bored Like, I'm trying to think of the word for it. It was almost that they, you know, for the third class, the tail end, for them, this is them trying to survive, and, you know, this is survival for them, and all they've lived in such a bad condition. But for the first class, they're like, oh, this is funny. This is exciting. This is the most exciting thing that's happened in a while. And to me, that was almost, like, disconcerting. I was like, this is is kind of messed up, but it was kind of eye-opening what to expect because – you know, when we let in beforehand with, you know, the guys with the guns, you're like, okay, they're kind of stupid. But then you have these people that are basically like the elite and you're like, okay, well, this is a little more terrifying, but I don't know why that scene to me was so weird, but I also really liked it. Yeah. It's the, uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) I was just, I'm sorry, and I was just going to say really quick, I mean, if you were on a train for 17 years, you'd probably be pretty bored as well, and it's pretty much the same thing as I always think of it as in Rome where, you know, you're witnessing all this shit in the Colosseum. I mean, witnessing violence and death is something that has kind of been a human sports time uh, for a long time. I mean, we even love watching people beat the shit out of each other. So you kind of have to imagine that that is also there. Um, they don't have TV, so this is, like, funny to them. But I'm sorry, Mark, you were saying something? Yeah, I was going to say the, the best part about that scene, and I'm glad Brittany, uh, you know, brought to attention this part, um, is that when they get to that point where you've been trained through the movie so far, um, you know, everything's violent, fighting each other. And then when they stop and start counting down, the first thing in your head is what, what big weapon or big soldier is going to come busting through that door as like some kind of, you know, finishing move for, to, to end the rebellion. And then when it ends with them saying Happy New Year, um, it's just such a, it's such a really, uh, you know, they finding getting the humor part of that in, but it's still really disturbing in a way. Um, and oh, it's it just, yeah, and it's just it was it was very well done in the direction and the writing for that to kind of and at that point I think it's when um, and maybe this is through a third and fourth viewing that I've had of this movie. Um, that's where you start to figure out that maybe something's not completely normal with the front of the train. Um, so, and I think, I think they showed that perfectly in just that, just that little, little moment, little 10 second moment. Sorry, I had myself on mute because, uh, the sounds of Yonkers are in the back with all the sirens. So I always try and 
mute myself whenever that happens. They're burning down Yonkers. Um, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it it's certainly interesting and something that um was uh something that I observed when watching this that it's insane that they could go from fighting each other and essentially killing each other and then suddenly stop and be like, Happy New Year and it's it's all very like weird and wacky and I think in a way kind of shows that the front cars really just don't view this as say I don't know, as uh important almost and as, as life threatening, even though this is the back cars uh really just fighting for their lives. Yeah, yeah, you find out later why that is um, when when they finally do get to the front of the train. Um, but it's 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 a great way. It's it's for people that want to know storytelling. This this scene is something I would show people. Um, to sort of like this is how you you know show and don't tell. Um, you know what the what the differences are um, on a. Um, not so obvious level between between the two ends of the train. And I wanted to point out really quick in uh, Brittany's scene, just a little fun fact. Um, the right before all that, when those military people are getting ready to fight with the axes and shit, and they uh, cut open that fish um, and kind of like drench their axes with the blood. Apparently. Obviously, this is a Weinstein production film. And apparently I had read that that was something that uh, the company or Harvey in general wanted to, uh, whatchamacallit, it, wanted to be nixed from the movie. And it was something that Bong Joon-ho was very oh, adamant yes. about keeping in. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is the whole thing where he told Harvey that his father was a fisherman. And that fishing yeah, was very was important to him. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, That story is so much better in light of recent events. Yes, yes it is. Uh, for those who don't know, um, not to get too serious on this podcast, but Harvey Weinstein was just sentenced to 23 years in prison. So, burn in hell. Ooh. But anyway, <laughs> Brittany, <laughs> I, I think this is a really good scene. It's obviously one of the standouts in the movie and certainly deserves to be on this list. So I'm going to hit the number eight and let me just look at my list really quick because, you know. Um, okay, so this is pretty much in the beginning of the movie, but I've always really liked it and it probably could be a little further down the list, but I also don't want anyone else to get it, so that's why I'm going to pick it, but... <laughs> oh, my gosh, Tia. <laughs> um, it's the one where Curtis discovers that there are no more bullets, because obviously oh. you have all of... You have all these people, uh, yep. these military people wanting to keep the back carts in line, and they have these insanely huge assault rifles, and that's obviously something that would probably keep anyone in line because you don't want to get shot. Um, but Curtis is sitting there kind of surmising that he doesn't think they have any bullets, that that's something that doesn't exist anymore. It, they kind of went through it the last time they had a massive revolution, and he just is like, fuck it. 
I'm going to figure out if they do or not. And it's just this, like, really awesome standoff when he just, like, runs and he grabs the the barrel of the assault rifle and puts it to his forehead, and he's the one who pulls the trigger. And then you just hear a click, and that's just, like, shouting. I think it was Edgar who shouted it, where he's like, they're out of bullets. They don't have any bullets. And that's just, like, that's go time for the back cars. They're like, let's go now. And then it's just this really awesome, like, high-energy scene. And I just love the standoff that Curtis always has with these people because he's always the one who's, you know, standing up when everyone else is sitting down. And he's also the one that's like, I'm going to put myself in this position where if they do have bullets, that's it. Game over for me. I just got shot now. But it was also like the battle cry pretty much of that moment. So it's very small, but it's one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. So I'm going to put Curtis uh, discovering that they are out of bullets. Um, Mark, what did you think about that scene? Yeah. So that, I had the exact moment on my list a lot higher, the moment when he runs up and grabs the gun and puts it to his forehead and then pulls the trigger. Um, that singular moment was much higher up on my list. Uh, so I'm, I'm sorry. Glad you, no, 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 no. You were correct in taking it if you wanted to talk about it um, because it was, it was on a, at least my list. Uh, but that seems great because what, what that whole section does before they rush and, and you know, start the, the revolt is it's a good way of uh, showing, uh, you know, uh, Curtis's character, you know, being very, you know, thorough and planning and sort of like a lot of more of the aggressive people are getting annoyed with him. And then, you know, and this is his first time doing that, just, all right, I'm doing it sort of uh, thing there. And it, it's the first time where, you know, you know throughout the whole movie that he's, he's going to be the leader of the revolt. And then he plays this reluctant hero thing so well. And this is the first moment where, you know, he actually springs into action and it's such a, such a key point in the movie and they lead up to it so well. And then they lead up to that. And then that scene, just the shot of, you know, him putting the thing and then the quick cut to the pull and the trigger. And then, you know, and then, you know, going back to Edgar and, you know, just that whole, that whole little five to 10 second moment is great. And, um, you know, it makes me, it gets you. It, it's a. It, it gets you into the movie. At that point, you know it's on. Um, and if you haven't been hooked by this point, um, this is probably where you would fall off because the rest of it just moves at a rapid pace for the most part. Yeah, that's a great thing to point out because prior to that, obviously you could feel the tension in the air, but things were probably a little slower at that point there was that very much will-they-won't-they type of environment, especially with in the beginning scene when they're doing the counts and everyone's sitting down and Curtis is still standing and, you know, then he sits and it's like everyone keeps asking Curtis, is it time? Is it time? Um, And it's like, no, 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 not yet, not yet. And then suddenly that's the moment. And as you said, it just kind of, blows off from there, and then we're very much at a rapid pace in the movie. So I just think it's one of those moments that shows, as you said, 
Curtis was very much a reluctant hero, a reluctant leader, but it's moments like those that show that he has the fortitude to be the leader because he was literally willing to die in that moment just to start the revolution. Um, I was going to say, on that note, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, I was going to move to you next. (laughs) There, you know, when I was sitting there with that scene is, you know, they're all like, when Gilliam's like, oh, you know, are you still sure? Are you still sure? Kind of like making sure because they had dragged that old man kind of up front and threatening his life. And that was the whole reason it's like, I think a big part with Curtis being the leader is he wasn't willing to gamble that man's life to see if there was a bullet. So, you know, it was, I think it showed his leadership qualities because by this point you're still learning. He doesn't want to be the leader. He doesn't want to be the leader. He doesn't feel like he's qualified, but then you see him do all these things that show that he is qualified, like being willing to let his life be on the line to see if they actually have the bullets. But I love that scene because it's so intense. Like the moment, the moment it clicks and Edgar's like, they've got no bullets. And everybody starts like going up in arms. Like it is such like, it is kind of the Kickstarter to the movie. And I remember watching the movie and going, man, I was like thinking it's all going to happen mostly in the tail end and that at the very end is when they're going to get, like, a little more up or, you know, get what they're needing. But it really is, like, how Mark said, it's like it's like the slingshot. It's like this was the loading and this was them letting it go. And then it's nothing but, like, uphill from there, like, going up to the front of the train. But uh, I, it was very intense. I did. I, I, like everybody else, I had this one on my list, too. But I made sure to have others because I was like, somebody's going to take this. I just knew it was going to be Tia. (laughs) (laughs) This is that scene that if it were Game of Thrones, um, the Battle of Blackwater, it's when Tyrion is just like, steady now, steady, and you're like, dude, you need to start firing because they're coming, and he's just like, no, no, and then uh, take off like that. So to me if this were some epic battle in Game of Thrones or The Witcher or something, this is when they're, you know, preparing, as you said, to slingshot, but it's it's all about timing. And that's what I really like because this was the perfect timing to start the revolution. So, yes, I did want to grab it because I knew that it would be on several of our lists. Um, so, yeah, that's my number eight. Um, let's move on. Mark, what is your number seven? Yeah, so my number seven, I'm going to do sort of a thing you did and sort of pull something down from higher on my list just to make sure because I want to talk about it. Um, I really enjoyed, and this is tying into my D&D stuff too, is I really enjoyed Ed Harris's lawful evil performance, at, you know, as the, you know, conductor of the train. Um, the name's escaping me, and, um, you know, I know it begins with a W, but... Um, Wilford. Wilford, that's it. Um, because his, that whole scene with him and Chris Evans, um, and he's just basically laying out like, oh, this is all right. I'm just trying to hold up order, you know, just trying to impose this lawful system. This is how humanity works. Like a very, a very... Uh, you know, for Star Wars fans, a very Darth Vader, you know, um, 
you know, sort of thing where it's like, I don't care what you think, this is what needs to happen. You know, this is the only way to keep the train running. And he he's just, for the short amount of time that he's actually in the movie, um, he, he basically hits his performance perfectly. And it's it's exactly going into it, I remember watching it the first time, was I didn't know if they were going to do somebody that was just like some kind of cartoonishly evil person or if it was going to be that you got there and he was just crazy, you know, just sort of like, that's why no one talked to him. That's why no one spoke to him. But then when you see what Ed Harris actually does with it and that, no, this guy knows exactly what he's doing. You know, he's very, you know, you know, by the numbers, we need this certain amount of people and this is how it is. And everybody's in their station and it doesn't matter if we want to be equal. And it was just such a different idea for this final uh, villain per se um, that we run into that. I think, I think his performance needs to be pointed out um, despite the fact that it's such a short screen time. Yeah. And this actually was on my list. So um I took something from uh, I took something from your list. You take something from my list, but <laughs> yeah, and I can scrap. No, sure. He's a fantastic actor. Uh, for anyone who watches Westworld, we know just how fantastic he is. But I was actually talking to Brittany about this, I believe, yesterday, where I said in that scene where um, Wilford is cooking essentially and he's speaking with Curtis and he's pretty much as you said by the numbers he's not saying any of this out of malicious intent which you know he's the quote-unquote villain so you want to take it that way but he's just kind of very this is what it is and this is what it has to be and he's telling Curtis he's echoing something that Tilda Swinton's character said at the beginning of the movie that you need to know your place. Everyone has a preordained place, and that's the place that you need to stay. And I love this line where Curtis says, that's what people in the best place say to the people in the worst place. And that's just something that Bong Joon-ho has in pretty much every single movie of his. He is talking about classism, and he's very obvious about it. He just uses these unique stories as a vessel uh, for his message. So I really enjoy that interaction between Curtis and Wolford because it's not something that you necessarily thought would happen. You thought like, oh, maybe it's going to be this big duel between the two of them and they're going to fight, but it just ends up being two people talking. Um, And it was more powerful than anything that could have involved this. But Brittany, what do you think about that final interaction between Curtis and Wilford? I think, you know, having just watched it, what's fresh in my mind is, yes, you do feel like you have that betrayal from Gilliam, but Gilliam does say, do not let him talk, cut his tongue out of his head. And I didn't quite get that until I did hear him talk. And Wil- it's Wilford, right? I'm making sure I got that right. Mm-hmm. It's Wilford. You know, he is so charismatic that almost for a second, 
I sat there and was like, well, I guess he's right. You know, you have the numbers, you have this, you have that. And I was like, I can kind of understand that. But the more I looked at it, I was like, but look, look how much the first class has. And look at the utter differences in those two, two. You know, you have to think about how, you know, they're able to support it. They obviously have enough. They never go without because they just kind of do what they want. And then realizing, well, okay, it is getting warmer outside, you know, and realizing there was an opposite way. But even I was like, okay, he is very charismatic. He is very, like, you almost wonder, like, even Gilliam, who was supposed to be the great person of the tail end, you have to wonder. And so for me, I was like, I very much understand now why he said cut his tongue out. But you almost have to wonder in that moment, too, was that, Gilliam saying like he constantly was like oh are you ready to go are you sure you want to go up there are you sure you want to go up there and so for me thinking back to that scene with Wilford and that is such a great scene because it really wasn't what I expected because like you said Mark like when I was I was like okay what's it gonna be like I imagine like a slightly pudgier man you know someone you know very into his work very uh cruel kind of like the the guy that uh ends up killing the kid uh in the in like the spa part of it uh you know how he was very destructive and very murderous I was like oh well, we're gonna get someone like this and then getting to look back and going no he's just very uh very posh, very, uh, you could tell he saw himself as more of a prophet type. So I, I very much agree that this scene was amazing. Yeah. The, uh, yeah, the whole, the whole, the whole moment with, um, uh, when he's explaining, uh, at, at Harrison to all the, you know, revolutions and revolts that have occurred and making them sound like history like you things you learn about in history class um, and why shutting that down, you know, and sometimes you have to give hope, but you also have to be cruel. And the one part of the scene that I never quite got, maybe I should rewatch it and pay attention is when he's talking about reducing the numbers because it would overwhelm the train. I don't think he ever, he, he says it, but never specifies like, does that mean both ends of the train or are they just killing all the tail people, you know? And, hmm. you know, what, you know, he, I don't think he ever specifies if he may, I, I, you know, for anybody out there that is watching it and yelling at the podcast right now. Um, but just <laughs> in my memory, just seeing it last night, it just seems like, he's, oh yeah, we need to cut down, you know, 74% of people from there go. And then he just, but he never says, yeah. And we also take out like all the old people in the front of the train, you know, to get them, <laughs> you know, done. I think what it was is that for one, um, you know, he does say that the tail end has way more because he's like, Oh, you, you know, you tell end you know, like to reproduce basically saying like the first class doesn't, you know, quite do like that. And maybe they're assuming that the tail end is populating faster. But what Wilfred does say is he's like, well, we lost more first passengers than we thought we would. I think when these revolutions happen, the revolutions happening, even though they're killing off a bunch of the 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 tail end, I think in the revolution you are killing off some first class while you do it. But the, obviously the numbers aren't as great because they have more to defend themselves. But I think to uh, 
I'm trying to find the word for it. With the first passengers, they do take some losses, but I think they take barely any, just enough to curb their numbers slightly, but they're not reproducing like the third class. Okay. I don't think so either. Yeah, um, I think that's one of those things that people who are dying from the, uh, you know, the further up cars are probably ones who die during these revolutions because um, the tail end people are sick killing them. Uh, or so much so that maybe it's the military people who are dying. I don't think that they're specifically going to the front sections and executing them because I think that these people just live very luxuriously and that would probably, like if they rioted or they had any sort of uh, disagreements, then that would be worse. Um, so I, I think that's kind of what it is, is that it's more so military people um, and front-end people dying as being a result of, like, the crossfire and stuff. So that's what I'm getting from it. But you're right, Mark, they never, like, they truly specify there. Um, but let's move on. Uh, Mark did number seven. Brittany, you get the number six. I think what I'm going to go for is I was looking at I want to go when they discover what the protein bars are made of. Because uh. <laughs> <laughs> looking back, I was like, man, those protein bars look gross, but they're kind of gelatinous. You know, they're kind of, they got some wiggle to them. So I was like, well, at least they're not super, like, just baked-baked. Do you have some, like, I guess, like, moisture to it? I know that sounds awful. But then looking <laughs> back, when they get to that part, and you it, and they're like, oh, they're warm. And, you know, they're, like, instantly gorging themselves because, you know, they're hungry. They have rations. And when Curtis and uh, the guy that draws looks in there, and it's so disturbing you to see the, the bugs just being churned, which I did have a moment where I was like, you know, with everybody wanting to go to like cricket based proteins because they're, you know, more sustainable. I was like, I get it. But also watching it just be crunched and you realize, no, with those kind of bars, you would want them to be kind of hard and baked because you're, they're gooey and hot, which means it's just like gelatinous bug guts. And I was like, okay, I'm kind of grossed out. And when Curtis turns to the guy that draws and he's like, you can't draw this. And he's like, and you think maybe for a second he's going to argue. And he's like, okay, because it's so disturbing. And the guy that's making them, they're like, this is what you've been feeding us. And he's like, well, this is what I eat too. And he's like instantly like, you know, like trying to uh, put the word for it. To him, it doesn't bother him. But then you turn and you see everybody still like instantly digging into them, and you're like, you're realizing, man, they're feeding them junk. Like, and I couldn't imagine what else they would be able to feed them. Maybe like beef byproducts or even the leftovers of the first class. Because if they're getting that much, sorry, um, a Bluetooth got turned off and my phone instantly connected. <laughs> but. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I heard that beep. I was like, oh no, Aaron turned on the wireless speaker. But um, 
but uh, going back to that, you know, you just see them digging in, and you're just kind of like grossed out by the fact. But I guess they, what I was saying, they could have fed the leftovers of the first class something. You know, you know they're not eating it all. There's got to be trash, and I know that's like, oh well, you know, they do get in their leftovers. But I think I would eat leftovers more than I would eat cricket guts. Yeah, but and the, uh... I think that's. Sorry, I was just going to say really quick, I think that that's, um, you just pointed out, Brittany, like, why can't they get the leftovers from the first class? But I think even that is a tale of, you know, they wouldn't do that, you know? Um, I work, and I'm not going to say names on the air, but I worked at a bakery during my college experience. And at the end of the night, we literally threw out, we were literally told to throw out any of the bread buns and the crumb buns because they wouldn't last till the next day. And depending on how, say, busy you were there or not busy, you had a lot of shit to throw out. And it was very disheartening to see, like, throwing out all of this food. So in the town that I worked in, there was a church that would come and say, hey, you know, do you mind donating some food at the end of the day um, so that we could feed, say, the homeless? Um, To you, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, we're just going to throw out this shit anyway. But my boss said no. And it's like, why not give it away, you know? But it's like one of those things where it's like they would rather throw out the food than be decent human beings and – you know, donate it. And anyone who knows, knows what I'm talking does. about, but I'm not, but I'm not going to say it on air, but yeah. So that's how I feel uh, like it was, but I'm sorry, Mark, you were um, yeah. going to say something. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I'll get to one thing, but jumping off of what you were just saying, it reminds me of, um, you know, when I used to work in a movie theater, um, the, we didn't have the, you can't take it home, but people used to, carry giant bags of popcorn home, like in these comically large plastic bags like that you could just sort of sling over your shoulder yeah. like a sack um, <laughs> because they would just get all thrown out. But some people would just carry it out to their cars at the end of the night. Um, but, yeah, because, you know, that's, that's going to get thrown out. What's the point? Um, but that sucks that that guy said not to do it. But, anyway, oh, my, yeah. my original point was um, – it, I, I apologize. We'll get deeper if this is on someone else's list later on because it's not on mine. But talking about these protein bars reminded me of how good um, that interaction between, uh, you know, Chris Evans and Tilda Swinton is when he makes her eat the protein bar. Um, and oh, like, yeah. He, he's the only one that knows why she's being very hesitant about it because she definitely knows um, what's actually in it. And it's just a great way that scene is shot. And it, it's just, this, that, is the, that is the end of the, um, you know, the reveal happens. Of the pro, you get the protein bars and the reveal of what they were. And then him using it to, you know, you know denigrate her a little bit more um, as they go along. And it's just, it's just a, a well done without him saying something like, I could see in some lesser done movie him going, ah, it tastes like bugs, huh? Or does that bug you? Having some kind of, <laughs> that, you know, uh, in it. But in here, he just stares at her 
as she's eating it. Um, and and it's, the, it's the unwritten thing that the audience knows, them two know, and it doesn't need to be said. And that's, that's one of the great things about uh, the way his storytelling is um, in, in most of his movies, uh, that he doesn't, he doesn't think the audience is stupid. Um, and he just thinks that you've been paying attention, which is great for somebody that actually, you know, it gets kind of rolls eyes and doesn't really care when things need to be hammered home. So um, I, I apologize if that's on someone else's list here, but I thought it fit well while we were talking about the protein bars. I, I agree 100%. Go ahead, Brittany. I was going to say, it reminds me, you know, in my uh, sociology class, we had to do over like, it was like whether or not America should intervene because in Brazil, we think about our ghettos, but their ghettos are 10 times worse. And they were talking about how there's nothing to eat or nothing to drink and people will fight over the, the garbage like these dumpsters just to get enough to eat or even just a mouthful of food. And it was saying how these shop owners started hiring bodyguards to guard these trash cans because they wanted to sell that food for pig feed and that they would even hire hitmen to kill off children because to them, those children trying to get into those dumpsters was cutting on their profits. And they would do, like, uh, who would do it for the least money to kill these children or kill these adults. But it was mostly children that they focused on because, like, a group of uh, young men or, you know, young male children outside your store or that they would pay these men to, like, rape the girls and how awful it was. And it made me think, to you about you talking about, you know, that boss that uh, – couldn't even donate that food or thinking about, you know, donating that food or, you know, the first class to the third class, I was like, man, I think we go, oh, how awful are these people? But then we see it happen in our everyday life and you go, man, this movie isn't too far from the truth if we were all stacked into that kind of situation. It's not too far-fetched. Yeah, and I'll say really quick before we move on, um, my boss wasn't always there at night, so we just gave the fucking food away anyway. So if you're listening, you know who you are and a few. But anyway, let's move on. Um, I will get number five. Um, and it's certainly one of, like, the strangest freaking scenes to me, but also, like, the most shocking because I totally didn't see it coming. So it's going to be the school scene um, in the movie. So obviously, uh, as they're traversing over to, you know, the carts and everything, I mean, they're going through the cars. Don't mind me, I'm hungover today. But anyway, so they're going through the cars, and they end up in the car that is pretty much a, you know, kindergarten, school, whatever, and it's very strange. You have these kids, like, shouting, like, you know, oh, what happens if the uh, cart, if the train stops? We all freeze and die. What if we go outside? We all freeze and die. And it's very yeah. strange. <laughs> the teacher is, like, way too into it. She's, like, shouting, like, Wilford. Um, very odd. And, and I was definitely Chris Evans in that moment, just staring completely disturbed at everything. But what 
is the reason why I put that this scene on the list is because at some point uh, it's the new year, so apparently they have a tradition where eggs get distributed, uh, distributed, and you know you think, oh, this is kind of cool. They're all you know eating these hard-boiled eggs, all right, whatever, very Easter-ish, um, and then the freaking pregnant teacher, which I'm like, you are very uh, irresponsible. You're pregnant lady. Um, but she pulls out a freaking Uzi out of like the basket of eggs and just starts like unloading bullets, uh, on everyone. And I'm like, holy shit. Uh, definitely ends up, like definitely ends up killing. I think like the guy who lost his arm, like ends up shooting a bunch. And then, uh, simultaneously while that's happening, the like bald hairless dude is unloading his gun on all of the back car people as well. And of course, this is a scene that also reveals that bullets did not go extinct. They just probably only use it in cases like these. They're not going to give them just to the regular soldiers who are trying to keep everyone in line. But yeah, so to me, that scene was so crazy that you just have this really, like, you knew that probably something wasn't right, but I never expected this lady to pull a fucking Uzi out of the basket of eggs and just start going at it. So that's going to be my number five. Brittany, what did you think about this scene? So, like, it was very disturbing because of, like, one, the children are, like, doing this weird reverse dab like, for everything that they agree with, and I was like, okay, this is a little weird, uh, you know, it was interesting getting to see, like, the backstory of, like, you know, like, that Wilford knew that, uh, that stuff was gonna freeze the planet, which I'm kind of like, why wouldn't you be more insistent then if you knew for a fact that was going to happen and you made this train, but I guess it's kind of like, the uh, Ark of the no Covenant, right? It, not Ark of the Covenant, the, the, well, the Ark. But, uh, yeah. When it was flooding. Well, so, I, it just, the whole scene was weird. By the way, I hated that one blonde girl that's like, I heard that they lay in their own shit. And I'm like, what? She the, never wants to smack hell? a child so badly. <laughs> I would say, like, it was very, very weird. And, like, but the one kid was cute where he's like, I saw them. They went through there. And she's like, okay, and what else? And he kind of shrugs. I was like, okay, that kid's cute. But the rest of them I hated. But, yes, as soon as, like, I was like, oh, man, they're being very friendly, like, giving the eggs. And that one lady from the third cart, uh, the tail end, where she's, like, grabbing all the eggs, and that guy still hands her another egg. I was like, oh, this is kind of sweet. And I was like, well, that one lady's hella pregnant. Well, then when they pulled that out, I was like, okay. Because you almost have it established from the very beginning, like, oh, there's no more bullets, and you almost don't have that stress, and that's why whenever the people had all the knives and the swords and stuff, I started to stress, because I was like, man, they do have other weapons, you know, and they don't have really anything, because the other guys, at least they just had basically just clubs of guns, you know, but going back to that, you're like, oh, God, this is about to get way more intense. I was like, everyone's dying, and so, yeah, I agree. That was a pretty intense scene. (laughs) 
Uh, Mark, what did you think of this yeah. whole school scene? Yeah, so first off, I love Allison Pill. She, <laughs> when she pops up as character actors in anything, um, her characters always stand out and very well done here. Uh, because basically the whole point of this scene is um, obviously this is, you know, showing that, uh, you know, the, the video stuff, may just be propaganda. Maybe he didn't know it was going to freeze and was just kind of like a crazy genius. Um, and now he's using this video to tell people that's what he thought um, so that they would praise him. But it just shows how you can indoctrinate young people um, by having cute little songs and playing on the piano while saying all these very awful, um, you know, very fascist stuff. Um, but it all seems cute to them. Like when they all go run and look out the window and see the people that tried to escape, you know, 14 years ago. And it's sort of like this, oh man, that's a bad thing, you know, instead of what we're normally taught in that, you know, trying to be free and all that is a good thing. But uh, he doesn't, it's another version of the show and don't tell. Um, It's just, you're just seeing a normal moment uh, at the school and, um, you know, but it tells so much about everything. And then, um, I, you know, it's one of those things where you're at that point in the movie where when they start coming out with the eggs, you're like, okay, what's the trick here? But this isn't just them handing out eggs. Like, are they going to be like poison eggs? Um, you know, and I start watching to see if the kids took them, you know, or if the other people in the train took them. Um, but I was not expecting the gun. Or if it was just, um, or if it was just for like you know the bat car people. Yeah, yeah, like it was their way to stop the revolt um, was getting them to eat these poisoned eggs, um, and then you know, and then just having her whip out that gun and get that first shot on the guy, um, uh, the the one armed guy, and just ending there, and then and also just all the fight scenes are greatly choreographed. And then the knife comes and gets her in the throat. And like, I have to rewatch it. Even though I just saw it last night. Um, I can't, the, the kids just leave. Like, I don't remember how they get them out of the way. Cause there's no like, I, I don't remember either. I do not remember. I just watched it. They were just kind of gone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, do they, they run? Or, yeah. But it's, it's, it's a really well done. And, again, going back to my number 10, um, just the layout of this classroom and how it's all bright and sunny and, you know, very kids' classroom-esque. And then all of a sudden there's all this murder going on in it. And it's such a great, you know, dichotomy of those two things going on. And it's just, it's just really well done. And um, the, the spinning piano and uh, – it's just, it's just real good. It, it, it's probably one of the more memorable scenes. Like, when I talk to other people that have seen it, you just say, oh, the egg scene. And everyone knows exactly what you're talking about. And I don't know if you noticed. Sorry. I was just going to say, have you noticed that, like, when the I, – I don't know her name, but the woman who's playing the piano, the teacher, as it's like – like, her eye is, like, twitching – Pretty much anyone who's like a front car person is absolutely out of their mind. Yeah. I think yeah. it reminds uh, me of if you've ever played Bioshock, 
and how everybody's kind of going into that madness and where you think it's like a utopia and it, it very much reminds me of that and the disturbing. So when you talk about the eye twitching, there's these people called the splicers. Uh, the real reason they went mad, I think it was because of the atom, like which was basically like this drug that they really wanted. But basically it was uh, that that eye twitch greatly reminded me of that. Yeah, it was just something that, like, always stood out to me as she was singing. I mean, the whole scene was a little wacky, but then her, like, eye twitching and going into the back of her skull was just like, what the fuck? But um, let's move on. Mark, what is your number four? Yeah, so um, I I want to go to uh, this one here, just uh, going back to the something we had talked about earlier, the whole choreograph of that fight in the tunnel at the New Year's thing, just between the fish blood thing to the, you know, all the, the blood splattering and the, um, you know, the, the ways the attacks are going on. And I even wrote in my notes, I just wrote the words fish slip Achilles slice. Um, which is one of my favorite move, move, moments in that fight um, when, you know, Curtis slips and it falls down and it gets the guy in the leg um, as he's down there. Um, and then the, the Olympic torch run, as I call it, um, at the end of oh, that that's fight. So good. That, entire, that entire choreographed scene between the first fight and the second thing when, you know, you can tell they've been tricked because of the tunnel coming up, then how they, you know how they turn the tide again. And then in the middle of all that is that crazy new year thing that goes on. Um, they kill off a couple, you know, quote unquote main characters that you've seen through the first half of this, the film. And it's like right at that halfway point. It's like right near the hour mark. And it's just, it was just, it was beautifully done in all, in every aspect that you would want uh, a storytelling fight scene to be. It wasn't just like, Oh, we're just going to drop a fight here. Um, there's so much stuff going around with it and calling back to things. And um, it, it was just, it was just very well done. Um, yeah. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I it was, it was when I, this was the point where I realized I was like, I think I really love this movie. <laughs> it's a great uh, scene, all of it. And I want to touch upon the torch running scene uh, strictly because that is, my favorite part of that entire choreography because I love how it, it's just, we love um, in general with movies like underdog scenes uh, and that's truly kind of what this whole thing entails. The back car people are the underdogs and they've been the ones who have been treated so poorly this whole time. And so to see that suddenly, and you can imagine that for so many years they've just lived depressed with no hope and in this moment they're all rallying together and that torch scene starts with just a little kid a little kid running and then first it's the guy with the and then it's the guy with the one arm and then it's the tattooed guy and I forget his name but he was pretty awesome in this he was like Gillian's like I guess new protege or something but he all of a sudden is like okay you go now you go with the torch and then that was just like such this fantastic 
seen uh, within that whole entire thing. And as as you said, there's so many things to kind of point out. Um, one of the other things that I really love about it is in that scene, while everyone's pretty much going to town on each other, you have Nam with his daughter just kind of showing her the outside. And it's almost like taking a moment to appreciate the beauty amongst this crazy fight scene. So I really love this whole entire thing, um, and I agree it definitely deserves to be on the list. Brittany, what are your thoughts on pretty much that whole entire, like, New Year's fight scene? I was going to say, it was very... It was very intense because, like I had said before, you know, when we led into, like, the people with the guns that had no bullets, you felt this overwhelming, like, oh, yeah, they're instantly going to win. And I remember when, you know, when you have, uh, what was her name? Was it was it Yono or Yoko? I'm trying to remember the daughter's name. When she says, do not open that, don't open that gate, I was like, oh, no, it's behind there. And then you see that they have the vests on, they have the knives, they have the swords, they have the axes. And I did find that, like, the fish thing, I was like, what is that? Like, why would, why are they doing that? And then you realize it's almost ritualistic when you're realizing, too, they basically worship the engine, right? You're kind of like, okay, maybe they have some weird practices, and they seem so amused. Or even when that first guy, before the fight starts, and he kind of goes at Curtis, like almost like mocking him, like to spook him. I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. But it was also odd seeing like, not odd, but interesting how much Edgar looked up to Curtis. And this is also the fight where we lose Edgar. And I really liked him. I thought he was sweet and kind of goofy. But um, like leading back to uh, basically you realize how badass of a uh, fighter Curtis is and you almost have to wonder what did he do before this because if it's been like 17 years he's not that old you know I mean he's older but he had to have came on this train when he was at least like what a teenager a young man so I think that's definitely he says 17 years you know pre-train 17 years on the train Okay, okay. Then, you know, you have to wonder about that. And you go, man, where did you learn that from? Or did you just, did you come out of the womb a badass? (laughs) But I agree that that fight scene was absolutely amazing. Like, you can definitely tell that the uh, director does have a flair for fight scenes, because especially because there is quite a few in there, and they are well choreographed. Yeah, they're definitely, like, well choreographed. I'm trying to think back on, like, other Bong Joon-ho movies that I've seen, and I don't think most of them have, like, like, Parasite definitely didn't have, like, scenes like this, you know? So he definitely um, had a different type of movie with this one, with including so many uh, fight scenes. Um, So I, I think it's great, honestly, and just you utilize Chris Evans. Like, you have to utilize Chris Evans. He's used to these type of movies. Like, when you have him in, have him go off and be a badass. Yeah, I, I think it's more so shows you how good Boone is with um, just I, – I know I've repeatedly said this throughout the podcast, but 
his ability to show and not tell. You know, he doesn't need to do the same thing over and over again in all of his movies to get his point across. He can do the classism thing and the, you know, uh, you know, being able to tell the story of his of his movie by, you know, in this case, it's violence. He's using the violence and the fire and, you know, that whole um, the fish blood and all, all that stuff to tell the story here. While in Parasite, it may be a quieter moment that basically invokes the same point across. And it just shows you his talent as a filmmaker, that he's able to basically tell these stories without having to keep going to the same well over and over again. It's going to be more that his themes and his ability to storytell will become his legacy more than, say, you look on the very bad end of it. You can look at a movie and go, ah, that's a Michael Bay movie, you know, and it's because he does the same thing over and over again. Yeah, it's just. I think this this is a great introduction to if you've seen Parasite to watch this movie, despite the fact that you probably should have done the opposite. Um, but it just it just shows you how good of a storyteller he is that he can tell a great story like in Parasite in the way he does that, and then also do the same thing here um, by using violence and shows a little more of that darker more gruesome side of humanity um, in this movie. And I think the train, that fight scene, the New Year's fight scene is just the, the first moment that you see it in this movie um, where, you know, he can do all this flashy fight scene, but you're still getting the story in there. Yeah. And he just does that beautifully. I, I'll have to say really quick before we move on to the next one, um, Definitely, you should see Parasite and Snowpiercer, I think, are probably his two best. Um, I will say that, like, Okja ranks a little lower okay. on my list, just because I was a... If you want to talk about Strange, that was a strange <laughs> movie, especially with Jake Gyllenhaal involved in it. Uh, but, you know, Silva Swinton, he clearly likes her because she can get into those type of characters. But um, Brittany... Let's move on. What is your number three? I was going to say, I hate to go ahead and take this one, but since it's my last one, I think that this is where I'm going to go with it. The shoe speech, where uh, you have, uh, I can't remember her name, but the lady that's basically like, what they say, the minister but uh, when you have the scene where uh, the two people that lost their children kind of have their little revolt in that moment, and uh, they end up punishing the guy by freezing his arm off, basically, to shatter it. And she's talking about, like, because you remember the guy threw his shoe at her, like at the other lady in yellow. And that it, you know, it cut her head and there was that blood, which that scene was creepy in its own because she's like licking the blood off of her fingers. Very nasty. Um, But uh, going back to like, you know, she says, you know, you're the shoe, we're the hat, you know, we belong on the head and you belong on the foot. And she puts the shoe on the guy's head. And, you know, she makes that hand motion of like that turning that I didn't quite understand until the end when you see uh, Wilford do it and he's doing that turning motion. You realize that's what the children are doing for making the machine go, the engine go, which, you know, they worship the engine. But that speech, 
speech was very infuriating, basically like saying that, hey, you know, you're beneath us, learn your place, you know, it was very humiliating, and you realize how little, you know, they're like, oh, it's preordained by, you know, whether you or your family bought a first-class ticket, a second-class ticket, a third-class ticket, and it makes me think of the Titanic, where, you know, many of the first class were able to make it, but the third class wasn't, and I think back to even buying a plane ticket, Imagine, you know, I always go with economy class. I never choose first class. Could you imagine that you get on that plane and just because you didn't get, like, a uh, business class seat that you would be treated like shit for the rest of your life? And that speech was very, uh, very interesting, very, uh, very caste system-esque. But I remember that speech infuriating me, but it was definitely, I think, enough to push the revolution into action. The only time that I ever got to sit first class was that time coming back from Arkansas and my connecting flight got canceled and the only one that they had the next day was like, oh, first class. And I was like, hell yeah, I want some first class. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But your uh, shoe speech uh, choice goes back to the interaction between Curtis and Wilford later on in the movie where Wilford says, know your place, and Curtis has that line that he says to him. And that speech that Tilda Swinton gives is very infuriating because you're like, you're telling someone to be happy with the fact that they live in squalor, they're filthy, they're packed too tightly, they're threatened by people with guns. Their children are getting taken from them. They're eating freaking the same protein bars for the past 17 years. And you're telling these people to be okay with it. And it's so infuriating, but it's also just iconic on Tilda Swinton's um, heart. Her just like, be a shoe, be a shoe. And it, it reminds me a little about um, – in the first Avengers, when Loki says to Nick Fury, what is it, um, a boot has no quarrel with an ant? Um, and it just, oh. for some reason, reminded me of that. But, um, Mark, what do you think about the uh, the shoe scene? Yeah, so uh, this scene just immediately reminded me how much I love Tilda Swinton. She... And it always happens where I'll never go out of the way to see her in a movie, but every time I see a movie with her in it, I am glad that I saw that movie. Like, she can transform herself so well um, across whether you're talking about Doctor Strange or um, this movie or one of my favorite performances of her in We Need to Talk About Kevin. Um, It's just her, her performances are so she's, She's sort of like the, um, on a slightly weirder side, but she's sort of the, uh, like, she's the female actress version of, like, a Gary Oldman who sort of transforms himself into everything. So when she first shows up, and everything from the hair to the glasses to the way she just moves and uh, does that speech and does the thing, I always wonder if putting the shoe on the head was, like, an improv moment. Um, did during that speech or if that was planned in the script, that would be something I would love to know. But it's, it's just she basically in the first 
30 seconds of meeting this person, you know everything you about her and you hate her immediately. And that's just oh, shows a great job that it just shows a great job that, you know, Tilda does in portraying these characters and she never, it's never wishy-washy with her. Um, if her character is supposed to have this personality and do this and be like this, if she's in it, that's her. And uh, she never lets it go throughout the whole movie, like the smiling and uh, when they're, you know, torturing her later on and, you know, especially her end scene, um, which is at the school, um, is just the whole time she's in that, in that character and um, just seeing, it's just, I think this speech is more of a testament to her and just how she brought this character uh, to life that, you know, when Boone or, and, or the other writer ever wrote this speech of the two writers um, did, I think she took something from what was written on the page there and, and made it her own and is the perfect uh, first introduction to the front of the train in terms of attitude. And it is such a perfect representation of what we see throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah, and I'm now really interested to look up and see if that was something that was improv or something in the script because I can see it both ways. I can see uh, Bong Joon-ho putting that in, but I could also see Tilda Swinton just rolling with it and putting it on top of that guy's head, and he's like, why the fuck did you put a shoe on top of my head? Um, but yeah. to be honest, he had the perfect hair to keep it up there. So um, I... <laughs> Yeah, that was very corny. Don't mind me. Um, I'm feeling better, though. I'm, I'm drinking my Gatorade, and I'm feeling better here. But, uh, yeah, Brittany, this is a great scene. Um, just you hated her so much for saying this. Um, and she's saying all this while this poor guy is getting his arm freaking frozen off, which especially as insult to injury, you're telling someone to accept their position of getting their arm frozen off. It's like, I'd like to see you go through this right now. You know, I like, I'd like to see you. Get, yeah, I hate her. I was so happy that she she met her end um, by Curtis's hand. But that's a fantastic scene is the shoe scene. Um, I'm going to take number two. And I apologize, Mark, if this is on your list, but this is also my last one. So... I'm going to take it, um, and it's uh, Curtis's talk with Nam, um, which I really thought was at the end of the movie, but when I was talking to Brittany yesterday, she was like, oh, yeah, I, um, I had to pause at this moment, and I have 40 minutes left, and I was like, wow, there was still 40 minutes after the talk between Curtis and Nam. I just, I don't know, for some reason in my head, I thought that was, like, all the way at the very end of the movie, but it's the... Uh, speech where, again, I really think that, like, Chris Evans flexes his acting skills, and I think that he is so much more talented than people may give him credit for, who, again, only think of him as Captain America, but him kind of giving this whole speech of describing what happened to the back when they first were put on the train and how they were starved and didn't have anything to eat and started 
beating each other. And he has this massive speech about knowing what humans taste like and knowing what babies taste like um, and revealing that he killed Edgar's mom. And you look back on it and you can see the look on his face when he is, you know, asking Edgar, do you remember anything? Because, and he tells uh, Gilliam, at, Gilliam at some point, you know, I'm not the person Edgar thinks I am. And it's because Curtis just has so much guilt because of that. But it's not just guilt that he has for killing Edgar's mom. He has guilt also for not being, you know, courageous enough, brave enough, whatever you want to call it, but for not um, taking the step to sacrifice one of his limbs like, say, Gillian did and others. Um, and that's something that plays into later on in the movie when we see uh, eventually what happens to his arm. But that, to me, is just, it's such a powerful speech. Um, this, the makeup is done well. Uh, this talk between him and Nam, and that just happened right after Nam, you know, is explained to him about wanting to blow the door up and get outside and everything. And, you know, those two kind of, you know, have had this sort of uh, strange working relationship, I guess I would say, with each other. But just to have this very, like, raw pause in the middle of the movie just stood out to me. And I really love this scene. So, uh, Mark, what did you think about yeah. uh, Curtis's kind of speech here? Yeah, so obviously um, this is both our number one. <laughs> so um, <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is the best part of this movie. Um, just from it ties everything you've seen. And the fact that there's still 40 minutes left is, for, you know, kind of amazing. And, um, and then that just sort of is sort of an epilogue to it. And it just, you know, Curtis's journey from there on out. But um, forgive me if you said this exact line in, in, in your opening to this, but the line when he says, you know, the thing I hate about myself most is I know what people taste like is so disturbing and heartbreaking and he delivers it perfectly. And mm-hmm. then, then he goes into the tying it in with Edgar being the baby he was going to eat you know, and then Gilliam saved them and just just the way it's like, it's such a reveal. Cause throughout this whole thing, you've just been seeing Curtis as, you know, the hero. He's the good guy looking out for everyone, you know, and then he drops that. And it's like, on top of there just being cannibalism, you know, Boone takes the extra step and, you know, gets even more disturbing, um, which is something hopefully none of them have to find out about. Um but it just it just adds to you know the it gives you a lot more story into the um the tail end you know the life they had to go through and why people like Edgar and some of the younger ones didn't really understand um and having that uh, go up against you know everything else that we've been told throughout the the um the movie with the knowing your place and you're lucky you're here, you know, you'd freeze and die if you weren't here, just be glad. And then tying it into, you know, the people that had their arms and legs cut off was because they did that so the people stopped eating babies. It's like, it's, it is so 
ridiculous and well done and it earns the emotion this scene gets and it's not just dropped out of nowhere um it's just it's perfect and it's the scene i remember the most from this movie when i think about it um just chris evans's performance here um is is so well done and um i think it's because you know i watch a lot of uh, crappy movies um, for the other podcasts we do. So um, I tend to need to get down into the minutia of things. And I think that's why this scene stands out to me. Good movie is because it's a scene that basically if you've been paying attention to all the little things going on, it's such a much more powerful moment. Yeah. It's, it's a phenomenal scene. Um, and it really shows you, you already knew that the tail end lived in terrible conditions, but this scene and this speech really just gives you a window's view into how horrific it was when they were first on board. And the fact that people had to make a sacrifice to eat their own limbs in order to survive just is harrowing and really it's it's just a well-delivered line on Chris Evans' part. It's crazy that that was even included in the movie, Um, but certainly, you know, an explanation as to why you see so many people like Gilliam not have limbs anymore. And it's like, oh, it's, it's because of that. It's not because of, say, gangrene or anything like that. It's because literally they had to delve into cannibalism in order to survive in the early months of their trip on this train. But, um, Brittany, what did you think about Curtis's speech here? I thought it was very powerful because I'm glad that they added that in right at the butt end because you go, okay, you know, Curtis is the hero. Curtis is always doing everything right. You know, he's trying his best. You know, he's the leader. You know, why is he being this way? But it kind of set up to, you know, in uh, The Mandalorian, you have, like, the the Mandalorian, the, the child. But, you know, so when he tells that story, I'm like, it makes me think of Gilliam, the savior, you know, or the one with the knife, the baby, the mother, you know, like it's setting up that, that, that tale of like how this all began. And it's like, I would mind like a prequel to like all of that. It's starting from the beginning with what they had to go through. Cause you have to think about one, they're talking about Wilford took all that stuff from them. He was the one that, you know, the word for it. He's the one that basically let them starve at the beginning, and you have to wonder if it was a population control right from the beginning. But it's just, it's disturbing, and you feel bad for Curtis. But it's like I was telling uh, Tia that, uh, you know, when you're starving, the first thing to go is your frontal lobe that controls, like, your emotions, controls your conscience. That that controls right or wrong, and it's like it's hard, it's hard to not want to be upset with Curtis, but then you realize that that kind of forces you to be a certain way. 
So I thought it was very interesting. I, I love that scene. It was very like, I remember texting Tia, like in all caps, I'm like, Edgar was the baby. Curtis killed the mother. And Tia just <laughs> laughing at me. Yeah. Yeah, and it, and it goes back to a scene in the very beginning of the movie when Curtis says to Edgar, do you remember what your mother looks like? And at the time, you think it's just two friends talking, and then you get to this speech, and it's just uh, he's saying that because of the guilt he feels and just wanting Edgar to remember her because he took her away, you know, and or hoping that he could remember her, you know. Um, and it's just, it's just so heartbreaking. It's, it's, it's so well done. And, and it's, you know, it, it, it's not an undeserved connection to everything as it completely makes sense as, as Brittany was pointing out about the actual science behind why things like this would occur. It's like, uh, Tia got to hear my tiny rant where I'm like, Oh, you have a baby that remembers slightly a glimpse of their mother's face. I go, which is not very possible. Like, I remember being in pull-ups, but they don't say toddler. They don't say child. They say, like, a baby. A baby. And so that what kills me is I'm like, okay, you can slightly remember the look of your mother's face, but you can't remember her dying or, like, you know, a glimpse of this or that. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. You're not going to remember your mother's face at that younger age, also when you're that old. I was like, I call bull crap. And Tia's, like, <laughs> was listening to me rant, it's just a movie. laughing. I was like, it's I don't care. <laughs> Well, I think it's not so much, and your point completely legitimate. Um, I think the point more is that question is Curtis's guilt. You just don't know it yet um, uh-huh. in asking that. You know, obviously, Edgar wouldn't remember, but, you know, but maybe that's the that thing person is Edgar that, says he does remember every now and then. He catches a glimpse of her face, but it's not clear. And I'm like... No, you don't, you little liar. Yeah, yeah he just, he, he thinks he does. You know, it's one of those, you know, um, and forgive me, I have not uh, seen the movie or read the books in a while, but, um, or read excerpts from it. But I think there's like a uh, a scene in Harry Potter where Dumbledore yeah. says some, something like, you know, is this all a dream? Or, or Harry says it's all a dream or all in my head. Or is it real? And he goes, you know, essentially, you know, why can't this thing in your head be real? And I think that's what Edgar's trying to do is that he can't actually remember his mother, but he keeps thinking this. He just sees this faceless, formless woman and says that that's his mother because he needs to believe that. And it, it's just they they did it so, so uh, you know, it was a good job of while it's unrealistic once you find out the actual truth, um, it, it does a good way in that beginning of framing the, you know, the fact that you of not giving away the actual twist at the end. You know, if he says, oh, no, I was a baby. I don't remember, you know, then, you know, like that scene is completely forgotten. But it makes you feel for Edgar because you're like, oh, this guy on this train, he just looks up to Curtis, you know, his mother died, maybe Curtis took care of him, you know, and. Um, 
it just, it's that point of that movie where you have to, you know, the, uh, you know, just throw, you know, the disbelief thing. Like, you just got to sort of take that leap of sort of, okay, it might not be perfectly right, but, you know, it makes sense in the fiction here. Um, but, yeah, I could see people ranting on, on both sides of it, as we have done here. I would say I love bitching about small parts of movies that don't matter. <laughs> I didn't even think about that uh, at all, so when Brittany brought it up, and I was like, I guess I'm one of those people, like, I like, obviously, looking into movies and seeing the, um, you know, the messages and nitpicking and yada yada, but there are a lot of times the movie brush it off as, it's a movie, it's going to be a little unrealistic here, so... Uh, but I also like what you pointed out, Mark, about how it's one of the things where maybe he doesn't necessarily remember her because he was an infant, but he that was his mom. Um, and so in his mind, he just probably imagines what he would have thought his mother would have looked like. So, um, but yeah, so... We are down to the number one, uh, and as always, let's go through the list really quick before we get there. Um, so this has been the top ten moments from the 2013 movie Snowpiercer. We've had number ten uh, as pretty much a praise to the director of photography. Um, number nine as the uh, the New Year, you know, scene. Uh, number eight was Curtis discovering that there are no more bullets. Number seven was the interaction between Curtis and Wilford. Number six were the protein bars. Number four was the fight in the tunnel. Number three was the shoe speech. Number two was Curtis, uh, his speech to Nam about cannibalism. And Mark, I know that I took your number one, but I hope you have a backup because you are the number one in this one. (laughs) So my number one is the uh, yeah, would have been my my number two if it was a personal list. But it goes with the as as I labeled it in mind the, the it goes with the cannibalism reveal of Curtis is when is when Nam is you know talking about how he started figuring out that the world is getting warmer again and how they go through certain scenes in the movie when you were looking at it going oh that guy's out of his mind he's just high and here he was showing his daughter the plane that has slowly been getting revealed um, as the snow is melted. And then they go back to the scene, uh, which we didn't even talk about the, the gunfight through the, through the cross train as they're going down the circular thing. Um, oh, yeah, where, the, the, <laughs> where the snow flake comes in. And, you know, he has this realization because the Eskimo woman from the, you know, or, you know, the Inuit woman from the... Um, the people that left the train early on had taught him all about snow and ice and all. So he sees this snowflake and understands that this is the kind of snowflake that melts, you know, and won't stay frozen. And it's just tying all these little scenes that he has that you just think he's, you know, sort of just high and not paying attention. But here they were very, very important to his goal in in the movie, um, which is, you know, blowing up the door to get out because um, they can survive out there. And it's such a good um, reveal with the camera when he goes, I'm not, I'm not talking about that gate, I'm talking about that gate. And he points to the one that would lead outside. 
Um, and just the whole thing with the it's tying the drugs that he has that they make an offshoot comment earlier that they're highly flammable. And then you see that he's turning it into a like a, a C4 plastic explosive uh, to blow that door off. And then, you know, it's just, it's just well done how they reveal this thing that there's an, another option. They don't just have to stay on the train. And then since this is, you know, number one, that leads into the, you know, when the whole train explosion happens and they get shot off the tracks because of the avalanche and, and then it's revealed at the very end, you know, that the daughter uh, ends up out there um, with the little boy, Octavia Spencer's little, little boy, um, and you see a living polar bear. And it's just yeah. like this whole thing is like all those people had to die on that train or at least you assume most of them died um, so that humanity could finally live again on earth. Um, you know, that reveal of, um, and if you put it together with the cannibalism one, the dual reveals of how the train actually started and now knowing that there's an option to not be on the train anymore, it's such a well done way of having two characters with two separate goals and, you know, how they're sort of similar and sort of in the same, you know, realm, but something that neither one of them ever had to think about. Yeah, and uh, if this were a personal list, that scene between Chris Evans and the one guy with the gun would have obviously been on it, uh, so that is a really intense scene. And I loved when Nam said, you know, not that gate, that gate. And you think, this guy is crazy. We just saw what happened to that dude in his arm and you want to actually leave the train. And we were then, of course, shown the people who tried to escape years ago. So why would you want to do that? But him pointing out the the plane, then seeing the snowflake, and correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't even, say, the avalanche kind of a showing there? Because if it was truly too frozen, would that snow have been able to tumble down the way it did? That's what I was going to yeah. say. A big part was whenever she actually walks on the snow and it's soft and you realize it's yeah. not frozen solid to like where she could slip or fall on it. You would think if it was that cold, it was soft and crunchy. Like I don't even think like the Arctic would have that soft of snow. It would be a tundra. So you have to wonder what that temperature really is. And also you think about if it melted that much over the span of 17 years, you're looking at things at least being doable, like at least maybe even green grass showing in the next, like, 80 years. If it melted that many inches, like at least being able to get down to the ground would be nice. But my fear was I was like, what are you going to eat? What are you going to burn to stay warm? Well, you see the polar bear, so there could be other animals. I mean, that would be interesting to see a sequel to this of how Yono is surviving. Um, but even just, you mentioned the snow crunching, but her and the little boy were standing out there and they weren't instantly freezing. They were fine. So it is, a te- uh, you know, like a reveal of, oh, the world really isn't as messed up as 
we've been led to believe there is perhaps a chance. And who knows if there were even people who were able to survive. Uh, we were never shown that. We were just told that these are the last remaining humans. But who knows? That's certainly something that could have been explored. But, um, yeah, that is a great scene at the end just because, well, not the end. I keep thinking that that speech with Curtis is the end speech. But I love it because you then find out that this guy, Nam, isn't just the drug addict uh, that you think he is. He's been collecting all of this chronol to make a bomb. Um, and it's just a really good reveal right there. So, Brittany, what did you think about that scene that was not? It also made me wonder, one, did he only get addicted to that stuff because he had it constantly on him, you know, for trying to get it? or pretending to be an addict to get it. You know, you wonder, it's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? But it was interesting, because at first, when Nam says, like, uh, like, oh, we're going to blow that off, I was like, are you stupid? Are you crazy? There's no way. And I was like, things are bad on the train, but at least, hey, you know, you have where you can grow stuff. There's beef. There's the aquarium. You know, like, things are bad. But is the outside really worth going to right at this moment if we can't figure things out on the train and at least maybe have a more comfortable place for a few more years to let it melt a little bit longer? But, you know, obviously that doesn't end up working out. You know, we see the children, you know, turning the cogs. You realize the only way to keep that train running is by basically child labor where they're basically going to live and die doing that sort of stuff. So you almost wonder, like, okay, this was the only answer. Because once, like, Wilfred tells his story, you're like, oh, man, you know, there's no really going back. You know, this the option we thought was going to happen. Which, weird side note, whenever the daughter tries to walk up to Curtis and he stops her, almost like, you're below me, I was like, oh, no, is Curtis about to be bad? Because, you know, he had just saw the engine... But I think it was interesting, like, to hear Nam's story. And you go, man, this may be doable. You know, he talks about the type of snow. He talks about the the Inuit woman, which, you know, you obviously take as the daughter's mother. And realizing, man, they may really have a shot at this. So I thought it was very good. Yeah. I I loved it. And I think that it deserves to be number one because both our number one and number two definitely coincide with each other. Um, while we have just a little bit of time, I want to quickly go around if we have, say, an honorable mention scene. So mine really quick is the fight scene in the spa where uh, Yono goes to stab that one guy and Nam stops her as if wanting to kind of uh, essentially, you know, spare his daughter from doing something like that. So I really, really love that scene. Uh, Brittany, do you have an honorable mention? I think the honorable mention would be the children in the, uh, in the like, realizing what they were doing with the children when she starts instantly digging at that tile with the, with the fork, and you realize that the children are in this machinery. And you go, and wasn't one of the kids, like, basically brainwashed? They're, like, brainwashed to just keep working on that thing because he couldn't convince that one kid to come out, but he could get the other. 
Yeah. 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 And I love that as well. It makes sense that uh, you picked the scene with children because I'm pretty sure I hear children on Mark's end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's my, my window is slightly open and I can't get over to it <laughs> to close it. But hopefully it's they go no away. Problem. But um, what is your honorable mention, Mark? Yeah, so, so mine is the what I had labeled in my notes as the uh, evil Willy Wonka moment uh, where he, <laughs> you can take over the train and sort of, you know, in that sort of, I'm going to die soon, you can have it and you, you know, just got to know, you know, all this um, stuff and then, um, you know, the the whole giving it to him and it, it that could have very well been an ending, you know, because I like some movies that have a, you know, not a happily ever after ending, you know, sometimes right. stories need to have just say, oh, well, yeah, that's the, the decision. I can see why he did that um, piece because he's basically had his whole world shattered at that point because that's when he finds out the speech um you know, that Gilliam was working with Wilford and, you know, everything he knew in the tale, you know, in terms of the revolutions was a lie. And at this point, you know, Wilford has broken his spirit enough that he thinks bringing him this thing um, will be an easy yes answer because he would rather be alone because he's never been alone in 17 years. So uh, just that offer as being the end game for Wilford was it was a pretty good moment. Yeah. I one hundred percent agree. I think that that was a fantastic moment. Um I think that all of the moments that we had on our top ten were pretty awesome. Uh just because it's a fantastic movie so you can't really lose when it comes to snow piercer. So um we are uh, we love Brittany unfortunately but it's Perfectly. All right. I will make sure to uh, promote for her. Um, Mark, thank you so much, by the way, for even suggesting this. I think that we did a fantastic job going through all of the ten uh, top ten moments of 2013. No piercer. While we have just a little bit of time left, uh, Mark, please promote your stuff and let everyone know uh, where we can find you. Oh, I think maybe we lost Mark as well. Um, no, no, no. Okay. You got me. Sorry. Oh. I had it muted. I had it. I had it muted because of the kids. Oh, okay. oh I'm back now. Black truck was like, I don't want Brit. They did not want me anymore. It said, "Thanks for using Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Goodbye." I was like, "What?" so i'll I'll just go through mine um real fast everything um as mentioned at the top of the uh show i do a um a podcast called they call this a movie where me and my two friends anthony and dan who is dan who you've heard on other uh uh, g5 nation uh, podcasts um we basically watch terrible movies that sort of either coordinate up with a movie coming out that week or a holiday or we polls. Um, and we basically review it and, you know, rip it apart. It's sort of like the uh, always bad movie version of um, the How Did This Get Made, the Paul Shearer podcast. Um, you know, we but we don't let ourselves watch good movies. But it airs every Thursday. Uh, 
iTunes, Google, you know, I believe it's on Stitcher and, and Spotify and all that stuff. Um, and then the D&D podcast, which I am the DM of, uh, called Stranger Damie. Um, uh, we air every Wednesday. It comes on. Um, we're going to be at episode 103 next week. Um, they just finished up the first big arc of the campaign. 102 episodes later, yes, the first arc is finished. Um, and, you know, we just uh, we do that every week. And it's very fun if you're... If you don't uh, know D&D, you know, we do a lot more of the role playing than the number crunching and all that. So it's a, it's a fun listen. Um, we're just a bunch of first-time D&D players that haven't really, you know, figured out the game to the point where it becomes boring or a lot of minutia. We have fun with it, make some mistakes along the way. Um, and then also, um, you know, we have the I Do a Video Game podcast as well called Game Vault Pod that comes out every other Monday. Our next show will be on Tuesday because we needed to delay it because of recording issues this week. But, um, yeah, so give all those a listen. Absolutely, yeah. As Brittany said, I talk about a movie all the time. Uh, it's insanely entertaining, so make sure you check that out. And if you're a D&D person, make sure you also check out Stranger Damies and then also the Game Vault podcast. Um, Brittany, where can we find you? What's coming up? I know that you are really into Resident Evil recently. Oh yes, uh, I was gonna say I got I do have D and D tonight, which that was like I was like nice. oh yeah I got that. Like, yep, I got it. Uh, my character is currently cursed, and every thirty minutes she has to go on a tirade, a horrible, horrible tirade. So that's uh, been going on. But, uh, I love your DM. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> So uh, you can find me on Twitch. I stream uh, Monday through Friday, except for not Tuesdays, because that's right before class time. Uh, I normally stream 9 p.m. Central Time until at least 1 a.m. Central Time. But if I'm really, really into it, I may go longer. Uh, I've had 5 a.m. days uh, from streaming something, so it just depends on how it goes. Really happy we just hit 800 followers. It was a huge milestone, but been having fun with that. You can find me at Itty Bitty Brit. That is the name, just twitch.tv slash Itty Bitty Brit. And you can find me on Twitter at Itty Bitty Brit Zero. And that way, uh, just to keep up with the streaming schedule and if I, like, yesterday I had to cancel stream, so it's a good way to know if there is a schedule change. Absolutely. Make sure you guys definitely check that out. And also, if you're still on, make sure you keep listening, because right after us is Wrestling Geeks Alliance. Um, they're patiently waiting for blog talk right now. So, um, But, yeah, please make sure you check out both Brittany and Mark's uh, respective stuff. Also, be sure to check out Geek Vibes Nation. We have a ton of amazing content articles, podcasts, opinion pieces, movie reviews, and stuff that you're really going to want to check out while you are self-isolating. So please make sure (laughs) that you uh, look into all of that. Mark, again, thank you so much for being with us. I hope we get to have you on again. And if you haven't watched Snowpiercer, make sure you do so. Uh, I'm Tia, and thank you so much for listening to the Top Ten. Bye. Thank you, guys. Bye.